first time I saw it, I went, holy cow, that is sexy for a bronze statue. I hope they never <laughs> tear it down. I hope, I pray to God he never did anything sexist or racist. Oh my God, I know, please. If they do tear it down, I'll take it. Of all the people they canceled, do not cancel Ned Hanlon in those tight shorts. Don't cancel the statue. That's right, cancel him, but not the statue. I'm Trevor Campbell, and this is You Made Me Queer, the show where I sail into the United Nations on a pair of four-wheel roller skates and take my seat as Chief Ambassador for the Republic of Xanadu. That's right. Every episode, I invite a fantastic 2S LGBTQIA plus guest to point the finger of blame at who and or what made them queer. Welcome. And for my Spanish-speaking listeners, of whom there are many, including the entire cast of Netflix's La Casa de las Flores, Benvenidos a You Made Me Queer. I've done it before, but I like to remain accommodating and inclusivo. This is our last episode of the year. I'm calling it my mid-season finale because I like something with a bit of verve. I will be back in 2022 with the second half of this season and of course a whole new slew of queer monsters for all of you. But this will be our last episode for now. We are taking a little break afterwards. Get your fill. Maybe if you've recently joined us, dig into the back catalog of You Made Me Queer. We've got both seasons on the Sonar Network website, uh, sonarnetwork.com, I would assume. Uh, Google it. If this episode is not enough and you are in Toronto, I still have a few tickets left for my first ever live show of You Made Me Queer. It is tonight, December 2nd, Thursday, December 2nd, even, at Comedy Bar at 8 p.m. with my incredible guest, one of the stars of CBC's Sort Of, Amanda Cordner. If you want to snag a seat, hop on over to comedybar.ca. You are going to want to buy tickets in advance because I think as of this taping, uh, I have about five left. So that is your one shot. Enough of that. Let's move on to a quick Year recap, thank you to all of you. You Made Me Queer was born at the beginning of this year, 2021, the year of our Lord and personal savior, Shelley Duvall. And I really feel so, so, so lucky, honestly, to have been able to share this weird, wild ride with all of you. Um, I got the chance to talk to so many amazing people this year, a whole parade of people I never, ever imagined I would get the chance to speak to, and I cannot believe the way the pod has continued to grow over the past year. I'm very fortunate. I feel very fortunate, and that is because of you, uh, my listeners. If you are listening to this, you are one of my listeners. I'm a speaker. That's how these roles break down. Honestly, this show would not have continued without you. If no one had listened, I would have uh, found a new hobby, maybe three-needle knitting, but instead... I kept doing this, and and I really hope it's brought some of you something in, in a really, really weird time. I hope it's maybe been interesting, brought you some comfort, made you queerer than ever, or if you are not queer at all, and God help you, God knows why, maybe it helped you understand the swirling whirlpool-like enigma of the queer experience. Anyway, what I'm trying to say is thank you, so... Uh, pat yourself on the back, give yourself a little squeeze when no one's looking, because you're worth it, baby. So anyway, happy holidays to everyone. Thank you for everything. No matter what dark rituals you practice, light a blood candle, if that's what you do in my honor, and pour out a little bottle of Smirnoff Ice Pineapple for me, my preferred drink of choice when I'm getting loose, uh, because that is what I like. I am here for you. I remain consistent to my brand, which is as follows. 
Uh, Donna Summer in the Streets, Little Debbie in the Sheets. Can we can we stick with that? What's happening? Let's get to my guest. It's that time, I think, because the wheels are already falling off. My guest today is, are you ready for it? I'm ready for it. Are you ready for it? Paul Bellini. Man, something else. I'll tell you what. You know Paul Bellini, even though you might not know you know Paul Bellini. Let's jump over to a mishmash of a few bios I found online, which are just delicious. Are you ready? Fun fact about Bellini's milestones, uh, what I would call, what, do we, what is it, like a, low, a poor man's keg? Is that what we call it? Anyway, they had a drink, a frozen drink called a Bellini, and it had a little plastic monkey that sat on the rim, and we would drink them when I was in college. We felt very fancy. It was like a $10 martini glass full of sugar with a toy. And uh, and that spoke to me. But that is not this Bellini. I'm not talking to a drink. From Milestones, I'm talking to a star. So, Paul Bellini is a Canadian comedy writer and television actor. Are we getting warmer? Are you picturing? He's perhaps best known for his work on the comedy series The Kids in the Goddamn Hall. That's some editorializing. It's just called The Kids in the Hall. And this hour has 22 minutes. Yes, Paul was part of both of those international mainstays. Uh, Kids in the Hall was truly one of the defining comedy and cultural and queer experiences of my little queer upbringing, and probably yours too, if you have any goddamn sense. Paul has also written for Comedy Central, Pride Vision, and many other outlets, along with Scott Thompson, also of Kids in the Hall. He is one of the gay punk band Mouth Congress. He is also a Gemini Award winner and an Emmy nominee. Paul took some time to speak to little me, and I will tell you, uh, it was an absolute treat. Paul is really quite exceptional, quite interesting, so kind, so funny, just has that natural spirit of someone who understands enough to take things seriously, but knows enough about the world to not take them too seriously, which I think is one of the hallmarks of a great comic. And Paul certainly is. You will glean all of that from this chat. It was an absolute pleasure. So let's jump right into it. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with the one, the only, Paul Bellini. You know, Google Images, I just put in <laughs> theater curtains. Oh, Google Images has a fabric line now. They do. <laughs> Fantastic. They're gorgeous. I like that you took kind of a left turn instead of going for the traditional red velvet. You've got a, a blue, a nice royal blue. It is pretty. It's flattering. <laughs> uh, I could have gone red with the red shirt, but I like the contrast. I mean, yeah, you don't want to be too on the nose, right? It can happen. Whereas with me, I everything is eggshell. Oh, that's your thing, eggshell. It goes with everything. It's like a dusty white. The Italians used to love that, eggshell. They do. <laughs> I feel like I had a lot of European friends as a child whose parents... The general aesthetic was this kind of color with clear vinyl over top. Interesting. You know, like on like a, a Portuguese dining table or sofa or something. Keep the stains out. Yeah, of course. I'm look. I'm fine with plastic coverings on everything. Uh, you know, I'd put one of myself if I could. Yeah, exactly. Please, please. I'm decaying as we speak. <laughs> well, let's not talk too long. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh my God. These are, these could be my final moments. So you better bring the jokes, Paul. Oh God, pressure's on. All right. Yeah. So, so curtain aside, where, where are you joining me from? Um, downtown Toronto. Oh, great city. Me too. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's that part of the discussion done. How has your, I, you know, I don't, I always want to bring this up, but I don't. How has your COVID been? How has your pandemic been? Are you fine? You look healthy. COVID to me was just kind of an interruption in the fun. <laughs> and the problem is, you know, just before COVID, I went I went into hospital for hernia surgery. That's right. And yeah. on the second day, I aspirated and I flatlined. And they had to resuscitate me. And I was in ICU for several days and my friends all thought I was going to die. So everybody flew in from wherever. And when I came out of the coma, I opened my eyes and there's all the friends of my life coming towards me like in a soap opera dream. It was hysterical. 
when I recuperated, I was ready to start living again. I yeah. thought, I cheated death. God damn it. I've got energy. I'm going to, you know, and then March, the, sh- the quarantine starts. And oh, you're kidding. So just as you had your rebirth. Yeah. God damn it. So, um, you know, I, I trust that COVID's a serious thing and I don't want to get it. But the quarantine, I thought, was quite possibly the most boring thing I've ever had to live. <laughs> and how annoying, because you're like, hey, universe, I just learned this lesson that life is precious and I'm ready to, you know, uh, live life to its fullest. And then they taught us all this global lesson. You didn't need it twice. I also think a lot of protocols kind of idiotic, like those directional errors in a grocery store like that or or the fact that they turned off all the water fountains in the building where i work i mean i I just think that's really an inconvenience i don't know if that stops the spread of a of an illness necessarily i guess it does but everything annoyed me everything annoyed me Uh, maybe i'll annoy you it's too early to say but i know because i agree with you those the arrows first of all i think the arrows are a separate agenda and i think (laughs) maybe we should have had them in certain places to begin with just just so people know what the hell they're doing with their lives. I would appreciate an arrow at some junctures in my life, just so I knew which way to walk and what to do. But yes, in the grocery store, maybe not. Because then they say, don't do this. And then they can seat you next to like 30 people on an airplane or something. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, you know, you just got to do what you can to avoid transmission. Yeah. Wear your mask, get your vaccinations and uh, avoid dangerous situations. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. I hope people continue to take that advice post COVID. I just got my QR code now so I can flash it like a badge. Yeah. Maybe I'll get it embroidered on something. Oh, that's nice. So you just show that instead of the actual vaccination. Yes. And then your poor 18 year old server at Salad King doesn't have to be like looking through your PDF on the phone. They can just scan something. I'll do that. That sounds great. You know, what you could do is uh, call Google Image Search, who provided you with that curtain, Uh. get them to print it on the nice scroll you can unfurl. That'd be fun. Just (laughs) yeah, but everything's changing, right? Yeah. So maybe this is the perfect segue, Paul, because we're talking about uh, governmental systemized oppression arrows, where to go pointing us in directions that maybe we don't want to go to yet. Uh, And, you know, as queer monsters, we can definitely relate to being pushed in a certain direction. Yeah. So, you know, when you and I were, we've already, we've talked about how I need plastic sheeting to stay young, but when we were actually young, people didn't know what was making us queer. You know, was it that, that little sweet chirpy noise dolphins make when you look into their eyes? There were so many suspicions. And now we know, of course, looking back that everything was making us queer. Do you remember early nineties when Simon LeBay took um, a measure of the hypothalamus and suggested that gay men had a different size one than straight guys. And it became this big thing where uh, a lot of people refuted it. And then there was the whole debate over nature versus nurture. Yes. The whole time I'm thinking... I was born this way, bitch. I don't know what the record <laughs> I know. You nurture me any way you want. But my earliest recollections, I mean, I was a, I was six or seven, and I was aware that I was attracted to men. Well, first, what's the hypothalamus? Is this a phrenology thing? Where's the hypothalamus? Part of the brain. Okay. Don't ask me too much. Okay, yeah. I mean, I stopped science after grade 10. So let's, let's dive right in. So I will give you my iconic copywritten cue. Paul Bellini, I'm so happy you're here. And now I'm giving you the opportunity You've had a lot of microphones in front of you in your life, but here's one more to point the finger of flame once and for all at who and or what made you queer. Well, you know, my funny stock answer, (laughs) and I actually came up with this idea like 25 years ago. There's a statue here in Toronto that you may be aware of. And right now it's at Hanlon's point because it is a statue of Ned Hanlon, who was a famous Olympian rower from Toronto back at the turn of the century, like like 1900s. And the statue is porn. I mean- So hot. You know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, I know. Please, please. You don't get those shoulders from sewing. I'll tell you what, he's a rower. The basket. I mean, that was not how to be a gay sculptor. <laughs> Just fill that out. I remember the first time I saw it, it was actually in, on Queen's Key in front of um, uh, Queen's Key Terminal, whatever it was called. And- um, First time I saw it, I went, holy cow, that is sexy. 
for a bronze statue. I hope they never <laughs> tear it down. I hope I pray to God he never did anything sexist or racist. Oh my God, I know. Please, if they do tear it down. I'll take it. Of all the people they canceled, do not cancel Ned Hanlon in those tight shorts. Don't cancel the statue. That's right. Cancel him, but not the statue. Not the statue. So, how old were you the first time you saw the statue? Well, I remember I wrote a letter to I think Extra yes. or maybe Fab saying that that's what made me gay. And the the letter got a lot of reaction because a lot of people got the joke and they were aware of the statue. They knew exactly what I was referencing. And uh, they might've felt the same way that this statue is so, it's such a celebration of male beauty that it's hard not to sexualize it. You know, he's standing there with the oar and he's got a big cop mustache. I mean, it's just fantastic, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that was probably 93, 94. I actually first noticed it. And, you know, I've written about it since. I've photographed it many times. It's hard to photograph because the sun is always against you. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. out there, right? We need to rotate it a bit. Yeah, or, or I don't know, light. Put it on some skates or something. But it is a, it is a great work of public art. And <laughs> yes, I will give it full credit for making me gay. I guess the real answer, though, is as, as a child, how did I know? Mm-hmm. Like I said, I was aware of my homosexuality from my earliest recollection, six, seven, eight years old. I remember um, my mother... Uh, worming it out of me because I was acting weird. And she said, what's wrong? And I finally admitted that there was a picture in a magazine of a man that I found attractive or or handsome. Wow. And my mother said, there's nothing wrong with that, dear. Every time mommy sees a pretty lady, I say, that's a pretty lady. And I, I realized that she was trying to get me off the hook. I, yeah. But she was smart enough to know, oh my God, my son's gay. Like, I think my mother, God bless her, she's gone now. Mm. I think she was brutally aware of that from birth. Although there's a picture of me when I'm one year old. It says, our little football hero. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, dear. More like head cheerleader. Exactly. Mm. Or uh, uh, or the guy in the locker room. That's right. Anyone need a towel? A mint? Yeah, <laughs> towel boy. Makes sense. <laughs> That's um, right. And when I was when I was at like seven or eight, I had someone gave me a book of sailors on a schooner. Published by Playgirl? Honest to God, whoever drew it was definitely gay. All the sailors were bare-chested and beautiful. I mean, but I wonder, because I know exactly what you're talking about and like that dog whistle feeling, but do straight men or, you know, straight women looking at cis women, etc., when they see that, can you really just see it as this innocuous, like, well, that's a fit body, and then flip the page. Like, that stuff is porn for everyone, right? You know, culturally, we were able to use that indifference. I mean, look at the physique magazines of the 50s. That's true. They were on the regular newsstand as physique pictorial. This is what an ideal male body looked like. Well, who is buying them? Truly. And for what reason? So, so the idea of male body worship always had its roots in health and strength. That's right. That's right. And that sort of thing. But the rest of us who were looking at that imagery and feeling arousal, we knew it was there for another reason. Oh, yeah. And it was there to please us, to address a marketplace. Yes, that's right. That's right. They get that money, right? Remember Playgirl and Viva? They were progressive magazines for today's woman. Oh, that showed male nudity. Viva being the first, right? It was from Penthouse. Oh, I didn't know Viva. Nice one. Viva, beautiful magazine, and then Playgirl about a year or two later. And both of them, it was just pictures of cocks. Let's be honest. Yeah, and like a weird sort. I mean, listen, to, to, not to yuck anyone else's yum to use something shared with me by Jinx Monsoon, etc. But a lot of like bleach bleach and wax situations that uh, were, you know, it's a look. But sometimes I think it was a bit of an editorial, if I'm remembering correctly, like the plumber or like I picked you flowers and I also happened to be naked sort of thing. Remember the early Playgirl pictorials were like that. It was like a guy going on the beach with his surfboard and he's all suited up. And by the end, he's naked on the surfboard looking at the shoreline. What happened? Yeah. And and it was all just a pretense. Yeah. You know what else made me gay? My mother and my aunt and all them, they used to buy like uh, these magazines that had love stories in them. I can't even remember the name of them. True romance, things like that. And they would have like photos and drawings of the couple. And it would be those kind of scenarios. The plumber who came to visit 
And I took one look at him and blah, blah, blah. We kissed and made passionate love in the kitchen and those sort of things. Yeah. Those illustrations and photographs were so hot because it was young guys in a sexual situation. Yes. And you never saw that in sports magazines or even on TV. You could only get them in romance fiction for straight women. <laughs> so a lot of the times it was straight men and straight women, the products were meant for yeah. that funneled down into little gay circles. Yeah, it's true, right? We just kind of had to intercept them. Like I remember my mom read a lot of Danielle Steele novels. Yeah. Danielle Steele. Yeah. So the same sort of thing, uh, loose, usually loosely historical fiction, but kind of just a conceit to get flowery descriptions of sex without actual sex in it but i would read that as a kid and like this book is not for an 11 year old boy in the suburbs but being like oh my god like this is it was really speaking to me this sort of sensuality the soft romance and the the metaphorical sex it was for moms and little boys who were going to be gay a lot of those romance novels would picture some gorgeous hunk with no shirt on the cover That was the only place we had to see men in a sexual or erotic light. Yeah, that's true. There were shows on TV. I remember as a kid watching Flipper and my mind was blown. The two boys were hot, but the dad was even hotter. (laughs) And you'd feel guilty. But at the same time, I'd watch every week. I know. And I know what you mean. It was weird because it would it would be like the erstwhile. My friend and I call them backyard dads because they were the dads from like the Sears catalog or whatever. Not there to be sexual necessarily. But yeah, like it was always the dad, which was an extra level of confusion growing up because it's like, do I like dads? And (laughs) the answer now is in a certain context. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, it was that it was weird examples of sort of archetypal masculinity, I guess. You know what else I remember fondly being aroused by was the Rat Patrol. What's the Rat Patrol? It was uh, this action-adventure show that was set in the the desert during World War II. I guess it was like Rommel and all those things. Uh And it was George Maharis and a bunch of other cute actors. And because they were in the desert, the shirts would always be open and they'd be yeah. like the hairy chest. It's too hot to close that shirt. Come on, boys. Hot to close the shirt. And it was an entirely macho show about soldiers, but because they showed so much skin and because their masculinity was part of the appeal. And now I realize those actors knew what they were doing. They knew that they were being sexy. Or whatever, maybe they were doing it for a female audience, even though the show primarily attracted teenage boys, I think, <laughs> because of the adventure and the war and all that. Right. But someone like me, I could watch that show without raising any attention and sit there with a boner pressed into the carpet the entire time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And no one was the wiser. And that was like my dirty magazines. Well, it's funny because also I can relate to that experience. And it was a weird entranceway into situations otherwise were like a fey or effeminate or well some someone who was sort of a gender outlaw in some capacity had permission to be in the space because like me all those men with their shirts open and then me coming in with my jump rope they'd be like "Mm, no but like keep going but that was a way for me to feel like I had a place in those situations to want to make out with everyone which was you know it's a weird side door you know um I don't know about you. Did you take phys ed in high school? I did. And it was simultaneously the biggest nightmare of my life and also yeah. pretty sexy. The biggest turn on. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same, which is a weird way to understand your sexual self. Yeah. You would see all the guys you were in class with naked. Yeah. And be like, why is no one acting like this is a big deal? Yeah. And I could only last about two years in high school phys ed. It was just too much pressure. But a few years later, I started to get a job at my dad's mine. So I was about 19. Because you're from Timmins, right? Timmins, yeah. So we're working in an iron ore mine. And of course, you have to shower at the end of the day. You're covered in horrible dust and grease and everything. And that's when I really had to confront my sexuality because I'm 19 now and I'm ready for love. And most of the guys were horrible, ugly old (laughs) French and Italian guys that you would look at (laughs) twice. But every now and then, be two or three stunning beauties. And I remember it was really hard because you want to look, but you don't want to get caught looking. So you have to find a context for saying something and then looking. 
you don't want to stare too long at a dick, but you've got to check out everybody's dick. And it's just a million things going on. And you realize for everybody else, it's just a uh, shower, blah, 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 yeah. dry off, get dressed, go home. And for me, it was like a half hour out of my day where I was just going insane with so many things, with fear, with lust, with, with all these agonies and ecstasies at the same time every day. Yeah. It's funny, hey, it's like a, a very entrenched kind of covert ops mentality you develop as a really little kid. And then I think that's why some there's a kind of a misconception like queer folks get fashion or queer folks get like social cues or, you know, sometimes there's sort of a heightened sense of social awareness. And that's not because you're born with some like fashion sense or whatever. It's because you've spent your whole life like watching the situation sort of from above it. Uh, and stage managing it to stay safe, really. I guess so. Or, yeah, they were a retreat of things like fashion or, like, you know, obviously I went into the arts. Yeah, right. And the arts always attract a lot of gay men and a lot of gay energy. And I like that because immediately, even in high school, one of the, we did all these high school musicals hmm. and I could tell who was gay and who wasn't, including the teachers. Okay, wait, what are some of the musicals you did in high school? Um, first one we did was King and I. Oh, oh, that one might be canceled. Then we did Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, Fiddler on the Roof, yeah. Then we did um, My Fair Lady. Yeah, okay. Semi-canceled, but all, you know, all golden age musicals. Sure, and they were great experiences for a young creative person to learn that music, Yeah. to get into stage craft, like the costumes, the set building. My high school was very ambitious. We were on a roll. Hmm. And those three shows attracted the attention of the whole town. Yes. Right? We got reviews. We got packed houses. And we're all 15 or 16, you know? Was that your first time doing theater performance? Yeah, basically. So I guess you could say that made me gay too. <laughs> I mean, I went to music theater school. So yeah. Well, you know what I'm talking about. And it was a relief from phys ed class, which was a different thing entirely, mm. because this was in the company of other gay people or queer positive ones. Right. Because was anyone out in that situation? No, nobody was out in 1978. Sure. No one. <laughs> there were rumors, but nobody. Oh, yeah. No, nobody. Out happened in Toronto. Yeah, that's right. Not in Timmins in the 70s. But you were able to, uh, like you're saying, you just, there were people who understood you and you understood them. My best friend in high school and I, we both eventually came out and we knew each other was gay and we had a great time together. But one time I did bring up on our walk home, I brought up that I was worried about getting an erection in the shelter and he was horrified and stormed off. Like I said something so atrocious and I realized his overreaction was to protect himself. Yep, I've been there. Right? He had a harder time coming out than I did because I was lucky. I, you know, I met Scott Thompson in university and he, he and my sister dragged me out of the closet. <laughs> was like, Scott out before you? Well, Scott was out a year before me. And my sister's best friend in high school was an obvious queer, mm -hmm. a flamboyant boy. So she had no problem with the idea of a gay brother. And nice. Scott welcomed having a gay friend. So the two of them, like I said, I would, I'm not really sure. And they said, oh, shut up. Of course we are. <laughs> so they didn't give me a chance to even rebuff or to lie. You made me queer. We'll be right back. And now back to more You Made Me Queer. But yeah, I mean, and let's be honest, coming out's always a difficult process. I, I guess it still is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've thought about that a lot because when I see kids now who are able to, you know, they're so in touch with their gender identity or their orientation at such a young age. And I came out when I was 17 from a pretty Catholic home. So I had to do a lot of work, but even that felt incredibly young. But the difference now, I think, is having to... I think one of the big challenges would be the way you have to publicize your life in so many ways from a young age and almost start to think of yourself as not a brand, but you know, you're thinking about the you, you show in so many capacities. I think that would be really hard to do and be a little queer. Well, let's be honest. Social media has opened up a Pandora's box of self-involvement and narcissism that was maybe always there, but never given the free reign. Mm -hmm. Now it's celebrated. You're right. Everybody's a brand. Oh, come on. I know. You know, so 
it's harder to feel sorry for people, even though it's easier for them to be themselves. I know. And it's weird, right? Because you, you know, you're a performer and a public figure. So, you know, it's not like we hate attention, but also uh, you, it is hard, I think harder and harder to find that line. Well, at least the attention I've earned was from my talent and not from me claiming to be a certain type of person. That's true. Never, honestly, being gay to me never mattered. I don't think it ever mattered to the world. Mm-hmm. It mattered to me because it shaped my psyche. Yeah, yeah. But I don't care what people think of me necessarily. But I think that's what we've got now is it's everything matters. Everything about your identity matters more than it ever did. Yeah, I know, which is a really weird, it's, it's exactly like you're saying it. It's a Pandora's box. It comes with a lot of opportunities and a lot of challenges. Because I wonder something like Kids in the Hall, which I, I mean, I got to say is one of the things that made me queer. Because watching it, I was like, nothing in mainstream culture has prepared me for this or why this should be funny for me or exciting for me. And it is, and I, I'm not quite sure what that means. You know, Let's talk about Buddy Cole because, Mm. you know, that's I'm the co-parent of Buddy (laughs) Scott's character, but I'm the one who did more than anybody in terms of shaping that character with him. Mm -hmm. And we went to a house party when we were in like um, late 80s. And we met this guy who were both really attracted to him. He was a French Canadian guy named Carl. And he lit up the room and he was just everywhere at once. He had great queen energy. That's a great phrase. Great queen energy. Oh, and he was really condescending. And he actually said, Scott sort of came on to him and he turned around and he said, I may have been born yesterday, but I still went shopping. <laughs> and he was basically being condescending, saying like, I would never date somebody dressed in these rags. Oh my God. Well, I wrote the line down on my cigarette pack at the party. God damn it. That's great. The next day I reminded Thompson and he said, Oh my God, that guy, he goes, he was so hot and such an asshole. (laughs) And, and he started to do an impersonation of this Carl guy. And a few weeks later, I borrowed a video camera from my buddy and we started to shoot improvisations on this character. Mm -hmm. And at first it was all over the place. Like Scott was doing a kind of an effeminate voice the character was a vampire who lived alone in a blue room. And, you know, it's all nonsense. Yeah. But when we rewatched it to see certain things emerging, decided to, he goes, this character is really good to say things. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, like, I can comment on the world with this character. He knew instantly. The problem was he was an extremely effeminate character. And effeminate characters traditionally, always, were weak-willed, they were victims, they were passive, they were scorned. Scott's genius was to take an effeminate character and make him alpha, Mm. to make him proactive, to make him sexual, to make him uh, a challenge to both straight and gay. So, you know, that was how the character formed. And all of a sudden, the monologue started to happen. And he did those live at the Rivoli, and they were always successful mm-hmm. for various reasons. I think straight audiences kind of liked the gay accent. They thought it was funny. A lot of gay audiences didn't. They thought it was a joke on them. They didn't know Scott was a gay man. Mm-hmm. All they knew was that they were being made fun of by this hissy, lisping, mincy stereotype with limp wrists. But that was the point, was to mm-hmm. take those those devalued traits and to make them a part of something strong. So for the longest time, gay community didn't get our work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, they did not get the irony. They did not understand the twist. So there was a lot of resistance. And, you know, you're called homophob. And it's like, no, you idiot. We're on your side. We're yes. trying to do something. Fucking pay attention. Yeah. And then straights, like I said, they like the gay accent because it's inherently funny. And it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still everywhere. Mm-hmm. And nothing nothing better than a queenie put down. <laughs> we still love it. We still love it. We still use it all the time. Now, I don't think the new generation has that hang up with queenie behavior. Mm-hmm. They celebrate it. God love them. Maybe mm-hmm. too much. But it took a long time for Buddy to take shape and to find uh, his audience. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know where I'm going with this long story, but you, you said you watched the show as a kid. And we really wanted to reach out to young gay kids like ourselves, mm-hmm, give mm-hmm. them something. But to 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 do a masculine gay character 
was still a few years away. And that's later on when we came to the steps. Yes, right. We created the steps characters, which are based on three of our closest friends. And they're very iconic. One, the activist who's who's got a lot of gay dignity. The dumb slut who's really masculine and who just really likes cock. And the wit, the the effeminate wit, the sprite, Mm -hmm. who's always on top of a situation. Those three characters are based on friends of ours. And they really worked in the steps context. And that was our, our second big gay hit on the show. Yes. And it took a long time to develop those characters as well, because there was no context. I'm sorry, you didn't see stuff like that anywhere in popular culture. A hundred percent. Yeah. I'm not saying we were the first ever, but fuck, we might have been. Yeah. And it's it's funny you you say that too, because yes, I my experience watching Kids in the Hall as a kid, I mean, certainly, like I said, something was resonating with me. But I remember Buddy Cole, I had a really strange relationship with that character because there was so little queer representation on TV or gay representation. And I did, you know, I was younger at the time, so I didn't fully understand the character. And I remember thinking like, is this what I'm going to become when I'm older? Am I going to speak like this while I wear this crushed velvet jacket? Yeah. I'm not opposed to it, but it was really all I saw. And I didn't, I couldn't appreciate sort of, like you said, the reversal or the satire that's happening there, yeah. uh, which is very clever. Uh, and I came to enjoy quite a lot. But yeah, I think a lot of, you know, in the mainstream in the 90s or the late 80s, people didn't really have a context for that. Queer people were jokes on TV. And it was such a cool way to spin it and and like the alpha status, like you said, I mean, listen, the whole idea of this podcast is to take uh, the thing I spent my life defending, which is things didn't make me gay, everyone relax, and instead flip it back and lean in and say, yes, everything made me gay. And it's not my fault. It's your fault. And let's blame it together. It's a fault, though. I mean, isn't it a blessing? Yes. Yes. When I was a kid, we had Paul Lynn. Oh, yes. Please. Hollywood Squares, right? Paul Lynn was never openly gay in his entire life. Yeah. but. Was there on earth who didn't look at him and think, bag? I mean, that's what he was. I mean, that was a tight ascot. I'll tell you that. It's the same thing as you said. Is this what I'm going to become? Right. But at the same time, I don't think there was a funnier guy on TV. Right. So I was thinking, okay, if that's the price, I'll pay it. Yeah. Because I'm looking up to this character and I know that other people love him too. And he's really gay. And that's fine. He made it okay for me to be that way. Yeah. And I think Buddy Cole in a later generation did the same thing for, for, for people of your age. You know, you're totally right. And part of that too was me, which took a long time, sort of fighting back against my own femme gesticulations and things like that. Things I was so, I think I was so terrified of being that character that I was told was dangerous and wrong. And instead I was like, are you sure? Because this guy seems super funny and looks fantastic. Yeah, but the problem was our peers would mock us. Yeah. Why are you being so faggy? Yeah. You're a fairy. You know what I mean? That was yeah, Today's generation doesn't have to put up with any of that. It's still in people's heads, but they're not saying it. So That's true. Because even if you came out, I remember, and I've talked about this on the show before, when I came out, my bridge at first was like, oh, I'm gay, but I'm I'm not one of those gay guys. Like, even though I was in music theater school, yeah. I, you know, had fucking Capizio split sole jazz shoes. <laughs> like, please. But I was like, oh, but I don't do this or I don't lisp or things that I thought had some kind of gravitas to them, which I mean... Shit's hard. You know, let's not forget the role of great ladies in terms of building our gay personas. Because I'm never, I'm no drag queen, but I know a great lady when I see them. And the old movie stars were so influential. You wanted to have their bearing. You know who obsesses me is Tippi Hendren and the birds. Oh my God, yes. She's got the perfect hair, the little green jacket. Yeah, white gloves while she's driving, and I'm thinking I want to be her. Yeah, I don't want to do drag. I want to be her. And a lot of times, as I'm moving through, like walking down the street, or especially if I'm driving, I'm tippy. <laughs> and you know, you acquire that, mm-hmm. and like that's a huge part of my being gay. I think is coming from those sources. Yeah, man. I mean, Tippy Hendren of the Birds is a pretty special one. I'd say one of my biggies is Shelley Duvall kind of across the board. So great. So iconic. Well, the earlier generation, it would have been Betty Davis. Yeah. Uh, 
act always going on about it's a bumpy night and everything. You know, there was always those iconic women mm-hmm. that, thank God, we needed them. We still need them, mm-hmm. you know. And 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 who have been so, such supporters, such vocal supporters, often of the queer community. That helps. But I didn't care about that until mm-hmm. my activist days when, mm-hmm. when, you know, when AIDS was killing us at huge numbers. You know, it was impossible not to feel the thrust of gay activism from about 1985 to 95. And that was the key period for Kids in the Hall. Yeah, yeah. A lot of that activism went into our work. I mean, AIDS was just a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And by 1985, there was no, everybody knew. Rock Hudson died, it was international news. And there was very little pity Mm. for butt fuckers. Let's be honest. Yeah. There still isn't that much. Yeah. So we had to get through all that right up until the cocktail in the mid-90s. When all of a sudden it wasn't a death sentence, but mm-hmm. those ten years were a nightmare. God, and that's like I said, that's when we were doing all our work. Right. Well, I read something. I think talking about your band with Scott, where like you need an outlet, and especially at that age, where you're this sort of like virile eighteen to twenty five year old, and you can't go out, you can't connect, you can't have sex. Like so, you just create, especially if you're an artist. Everything was so scary back then. Yeah, but, but you're young, and you need to express yourself sexually and it was very difficult you know there was a period of time when do blowjobs give you right like no one knew no no they don't but at the time everything was threatening yeah i mean even you know going into the late 90s or the early 2000s people i remember seeing stupid subplots on tv show like can you kiss your friend with hiv on the cheek or like share a drink in the public consciousness there was no education but it's sort of the same with COVID contagion. Yeah, There's no real perspective. The, the fear element is bigger than the actual transmissibility it ever could be. You know, again, nobody wants COVID, but I don't know if you could get it from walking down the street with a mask on, but some people still have to social distance. They need that, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas gay men got over AIDS pretty fast. I, I never liked the whole barebacking thing. Mm-hmm. I always thought, geez, that's dumb. But <laughs> yeah. uh, that was a different generation. Yeah, right. I mean, wild. I mean, listen, we're going we're going off the comedy train for a little bit. Yeah, but true. yeah, you know, I think about the way sort of the queer character culture, specifically in New York City, was exploding in like the hedonistic in a really positive way, like just like feeling good and the way AIDS and HIV derailed that. Totally. And seeing the very, well, I mean, you say it was a fast recovery, but in a weird way, I mean, it had a long shadow in the way I think the public thought of queer people, which took a while to claw back from. A lot of damage. It took gay marriage, right? Uh, which was a cause that straight women could get behind. I know it took queer people to come real boring. <laughs> come real boring, and and I think that was the turnaround for us. Yeah, that that's what allowed straight people to go. They're just like us. That's right. You know, all that kind of stuff. They all just want a monogamous relationship in the suburbs with a car and a toy poodle and etc. But people are still horrified by the idea of anal intercourse, and they always will be. Do you know it? I know, and that's funny because I think it is one of the last bastions of queer horror when people have issues with queer folks because they're much, I mean, it's tied to the patriarchy too. They're much more accepting to think of queer cis women or things like that. But gay men and certain trans identities get pulled in. People just think butts are, they don't want to talk about it or think about it. And it really throws them off. It's so Puritan. Yeah. I mean, please. And listen, if you're listening and you haven't put something in your butt, uh, the first thing I'll say is you're missing out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always a surprise when the first time you do it, you go, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a so, you know, if you want to go on and continue living 50% of your existence, knock yourself out. But, you know, if you're ready, just get a big old bottle of Bud Light Lime. And no, do not put glass in your butt. You remember the Buddy Cole joke? No, tell me. I don't know if this ever made it onto TV or if it was one of the jokes he used to do with live, but straight men explore your ass it's your pussy (laughs) (laughs) Ding! Ding. if you remember nothing else from this conversation it's that so let's quickly recap paul 
of the things you've thrown under the bus. Mm. So we started when you were young. Maybe that first thing your mom said to you mm. when she kind of gave you permission, I think. Uh-huh. She was started making you queer. Uh-huh. And then we'll, do we go into phys ed in the showers? No, I would say the Book of Sailors. Oh, yeah, the Book of Sailors. Book of Sailors, then uh, phys ed in the showers. Mm-hmm. And the, um, then I would say the Ned Hanlon statue. Well, well also the musicals, but for sure, mm-hmm. Ned Hanlon. Um, Tippy Hedren and the Birds. Oh, again, my God. Contributing. 100%. And then I guess meeting Scott probably pushed you right over the edge. Well, because the thing with meeting Scott was that all of a sudden I had an ally who I felt equal in strength. Yes. And and equal in purpose that we both had to do something for other people. And it was important to us to do that. So that was a, a, a major turning point. And, you know, after 40 years or so, we're still the closest of friends hmm. and we still work together all the time. So that's a very important relationship in my life. So we blame you, Scott Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> we blame you. So before I let you go, Paul, and I really don't want to, do you want to play a game? Yes. Okay, great. This game is called Queer, Queerer, Queerist. Queer, I'm going to give you three things. I need you to put them in order from least queer to most queer and tell me why. You ready? Uh-huh. Okay. Thing number one, mini golf golf ball washers. Do you know that little washing station? No, I know mini golf. Perfect. So the, the golf ball washers, it was like a little metal pipe that extended from the ground and you'd put your ball in the top and just kind of dunk it and it would wash all the sediment off. Right. Okay. Okay. So that's thing number one with those colorful balls. Uh, thing number two, that look that an animal gives you when they stare at you for a few seconds and then turn their head to the side like they're asking a question. <laughs> you know that look, right? Oh, yeah. I get it all the time for the cat. Okay. Yes. Perfect. That's thing number two. Thing number three, chain wallets. Wallets attached to a chain and then maybe your belt loop. So recap, mini golf, golf ball washers, that look an animal gives you when they stare at you for a few seconds and then turn their head to the side and chain wallets. Least queer to most queer and why? Okay, I'm going to use um, preciousness as my rubric. Okay. <laughs> so, um, as precious as it is to wash a miniature golf ball or a golf ball on a miniature course, I'm going to make that the least. Oh, okay. I mean, it's a cleanliness thing and it's incredibly silly, but I guess it serves a purpose when you're playing mini golf. Yeah. Um, number two. Um, the look that an animal gives you where they tilt their head. <laughs> You're using my order. I like this. Yeah. Well, it's, it's obvious that it's that is they're saying something like mm, I get you or I don't get you, but I'm listening. Mm. Uh, they're showing an instinct that seems to be above and beyond. Uh, it's a gay instinct that they're showing. It's, yeah, I like that. I, I resonate with that. Pain wallets. I know a lot of straight people do it, <laughs> but there's something about putting anything on a chain. That feels really gay. Oh, yeah. It's the gateway to pup play. It's pup play. Pup play really (laughs) did it for me. Um, But I don't know. It's like like enslaving a wallet. It just, it's so (laughs) weird. It's so, it's got such a sexual dynamic, even though there's practicality to it. Yeah, but talk about alpha. You're really putting that wallet in its place. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, perfect. So, uh, (laughs) so let me check my academic rubric. Uh, check, check, check. Congratulations, Paul. 100%. Yay. You are, in fact, a queer person. There you go. Well, I've spent all my life doing it, so I have it perfected by now. That's right. You have the certification to prove it. Uh, so, Paul, before I let you go, anything you want to plug? Well, Scott and I have an album coming out from our band. These are all recordings that were made in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, the band is called Mouth Congress, which mm-hmm. is, of course, a Victorian term for oral sex. <laughs> uh, Congress being any kind of sexual activity and Mouth Congress being specifically a giving and getting head. Perfect. And the album's called Waiting for Henry. We don't know who Henry is. We're waiting for him. It could be some elusive future partner or some menace. We don't know. Um, 29 tracks. Wow. Uh, very gay, very funny stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're extremely proud of it. We Mouth Congress happened just before Kids in the Hall, and it was kind of derailed by the demands of having to produce a TV show. Yeah. So we had to put it away. 
and it was in my closet for two decades. And then we unearthed it. We went, fuck, this is great stuff. We made a documentary, which we still haven't released, but we're going to be doing some showings in Toronto soon. Uh, the album's available from Captured Tracks, which is a record company in Brooklyn. And I believe all the tracks will show up on Spotify and Apple Music and all those other platforms. So enjoy Mouth Congress. We always did. Yeah, do it. Because, I mean, people know you as a comedian and a funny person, but the music stands up. This is good. I hope so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really the 80s stuff, but it is very inventive. I, I put a lot of work into it. We, we, a lot of the songs are written from the perspective of characters, mm-hmm. so they have a certain unique energy. Oh, the other thing I should mention, of course, a uh, new season of Kids in the Hall on Amazon Prime starting in January. Eight new episodes. I had a little preview the other day and amazing stuff. Well, a new season, like a n- they've recorded new episodes? It was all shot this summer in Toronto. Oh my God. Eight new episodes of material and a two-hour documentary detailing the history of the troupe, which is just fascinating. I mean, and I'm all over it. So yes. you can never get enough of me. Please. Yeah. Are you, do you appear in a towel again? Of course. No spoilers, but of course. No spoilers, but that's one bathhouse imagery that no one wants to shake off. <laughs> Please. Couldn't have we tried. And yeah. that's, I mean, like, we can't overstate the impact of Kids in the Hall really internationally. I mean, there was nothing like it. And honestly, I think there continues to be nothing like it. It really captured something special. So thank you. They are five very unique and weird men and extremely talented and It's good to know that even after all these decades and all the petty squabbles, that they can still come together and create a magnificent piece of product. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, you're such an integral part of that, too. It's not just the five on screen. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to have uh, struck gold early on in life. 100%. So thank you for that. And also, I want to thank you because I was pretty queer when this conversation started. But talking to you, Paul, has made me queerer than ever. (laughs) Well, (laughs) use it today to celebrate. Can't stop, won't stop. So thanks so much, Paul. Thanks, Trevor. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. And that is our show in the mid-season finale of my only living air, You Made Me Queer, the podcast. So as always, you can email me at youmademequeer at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. Forward your hydro bill. Maybe I'll pay it. Rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast because remember that movie, Pay It Forward? This is what they were talking about. And if there's any left, and I'm not sure by the time you hear this, if there will be, buy your tickets to You Made Me Queer live tonight, Thursday, December 2nd, 2021 at Comedy Bar in Toronto on Thursday, December 2nd at 8 p.m. All of that information came out in a very strange order. Uh, Maybe I will see you there. I'm in love with you, your families, and your employers. Q credits. You Made Me Queers, created, produced, and edited by moi, Trevor Campbell. Our theme song is by Critty. For more from music, check out lavenderbruisers.bandcamp.com. Our website is youmademequeer.com. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are at youmademequeer. New episodes of You Made Me Queer are going back to every other Thursday in the new year. We'll be in touch. And from the bottom of my big, bent heart, Thank you so much for listening this year. You made this thing go. You made this possible. I love you. Until next time, remember, we're here. We're queer. And it's your fault.